Hello, Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and this is the LARB Radio Hour. We're only a half hour, but hey, we're aspirational. We're dreamers. Today, we're going to talk about Hannah Arendt, Charles Dickens, and James Elroy. We're going to hear from our correspondents, Maria Bastios and Juan Felipe Herrera, and all kinds of literary things will occur. Joining me are my co-hosts, the founder of the Los Angeles Review of Books, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. Hey, Seth. And journalist, critic, and Oscar Hammerstein expert, Lori Weiner. Hello, Lori. Hello, Seth. Hannah Arendt, Lori, you're reading the book uh, that's just come out? Well, it's a couple of months old. It's called Eichmann Before Jerusalem. It's a fairly new book. It's by another German writer, a German philosopher named Bettina Stangneth. Let me just say quick who... Everybody knows who Hannah Arendt is, right? She's one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century. She studied with Martin Heidegger. She was born, raised, educated in Germany. Heidegger's lover for the gossip mongers. And has written great books, my favorite being The Human Condition. She came on the scene really with Eichmann in Jerusalem in 19... During the trial. Early 1960s. It was originally, of, I believe, a four-part series in the New Yorker magazine and then was published a couple of years later as a book. Also, she was born in Germany and she w- was forced to leave. She was Jewish. She went to Paris and then she was, had to leave Paris and she wound up here. And then she attended the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem. And the book was very controversial when it came out in the early 1960s, Laurie. Still is. And why was that, Laurie? The famous subtitle of the book is uh, The Banality of Evil. And people who knew Eichmann, who suffered under Eichmann, who studied Eichmann, took offense to this subtitle because they felt that it minimized Eichmann's responsibility for what he did, and which was what Eichmann was trying to do anyway at the trial. And so some people see Hannah Arendt buying Eichmann's story about himself. That's, That's the controversy. Right? Yeah. And having been played by him, essentially. Yes, but, you know, I challenge you to find that in her text. I mean, she's well aware of what he's doing and what she's talking about. Okay, this is, this is what I think. In, in 1960, it was not permissible to talk about an act of Nazi as if he were a human being. She's saying, look at him, he's a clown, he's a fool, he's every, every sentence is a cliche, uh, he's so stupid. She makes fun of his logic, which is pretty funny, actually, and she says it's, it's incredible that it's funny because it's so horrifying, but it is funny. <laughs> well, there were two things that she did in, in my reading of the book that really uh, explain why it was so controversial. The first is the tone. She adopted a tone of satire or irony uh, to deal with this subject, and this is really uh, before anybody had approached something of this nature with that kind of tone. It was only uh, Lenny Bruce was the first person doing it on on stage as a comedian, and he was he was just a comic. No, no writer of serious nonfiction had ever, ever approached a subject of this nature in that tone. And the second thing she it's, did... It's even before Mel Brooks. Yes, it is. She predates Mel Brooks as a major cultural force. And the, and the second thing that she did was her indictment of the Jewish leadership and went so far as claiming that had there not been... In a Jewish leadership, in fact, far fewer Jews would have perished because one of the 
genius aspects of what the Nazis did on the evil scale was co-opt the leadership and help uh, get the leadership to help them. And she was pilloried, pilloried for attacking the leadership on this issue. Right. And and she says that she thinks that one to two million people would have been saved if the leadership was not so eager to help. But of course, it is Monday morning quarterbacking. Absolutely. Because the Jews who were the heads of the temples in Vienna and... Yeah, what, um, what, what's that film? Uh, the Last of the Unjust. Yeah. It's about Mermelstein, who was the chief mm-hmm. rabbi in, um, in Vienna, right. I believe. And um, he went on to be the head of the Jewish organization there and then in Theresienstadt, where he wound up. So most people feel like those leaders were just trying to save as many people as they could, and indeed they did save some people. So what was the point of view of this author? Why did she undertake to write this book, this new book? And the title again is? It's called Eichmann Before Jerusalem. So it's about his years after the war. It's just a more in-depth look at what happened to him right after the war, where he went, what he led people to believe, whether he was savvy or not. But anyway, he got away. He lived for a while in northern Germany. A lot of Nazis were up there. You know, they get together on Friday night and drink a beer and talk about the old days. And then he wound up in Argentina, again, a huge Nazi colony there. So he's interviewed extensively by this guy, Sassen, in Argentina. And Hannah Rent had access to those interviews, and she talks about them. But this new book is looks at it in depth about everything that he said. Well, Arendt really was defining uh, the banality of evil as as an, an absence, essentially. And that was too abstract a concept for people who were so exercised about the situation to understand. It was too subtle a philosophical concept. And being a philosopher, it's interesting that that's what she landed on. And of course, there are a, a lot of people are going to bring a great deal of emotion to this and can't really parse the nuances of that kind of thinking. The Norwegian heartthrob, Karl of Nelsgaard, you know, he writes about Hitler in the fifth volume of his My Struggle, which hasn't been translated into English yet. And one of his riffs in that section is a very long riff on Hitler and how there is no there, there, there's no sense of self that in Mein Kampf he never uses the word I, it's only we. And uh, so it's this very similar theory to Hannah Arendt's that, that uh, and both Eichmann, by the way, both Eichmann and Hitler, went. To, they went to the same school in Linz, the mm-hmm. same middle school. They both were very average students. They both had no accomplishments to their names, none before getting into politics. So there, there is this sense of the empty vessel, you know, that had nothing, no self, no sense of self. Who has a sense of self? I mean, is this a surprise? Um, is it only the evil people that have no center? No, but it might be a requirement for evil. Nadie comprende lo que sufro yo. And now, our correspondent from the poetry front, Juan Felipe Herrera, is going to read a poem by Jorge Arqueta about their friend, poet and activist Alfonso Texidor. This is Juan Felipe Herrera. And today what I want to do is just let us honor uh, a poet from the Mission District in San Francisco, California, who passed away on December 25th, 2014. A great poet, uh, a great speaker, uh, a great figure, a very personal, lovable, kind, fiery poet. 
Alfonsito Texidor. From Puerto Rico, from El Fanguito, pro-independista activist in high school, a young, young lord, a member of the Young Lords in New York, uh, who opened up a free clinic with the Young Lords, and on, a theater uh, activist, performer, spoken word poet, activist in San Francisco, and anti-Vietnam War demonstrator, speaker in the 60s, all the way to the present, it was all about voice. Jorge Argueta wrote this poem for him. Jorge Argueta, Salvadoreño poet in the Bay Area, who dedicates his time and life to writing for children and organizing events for children in the Bay Area and in Central America in El Salvador. And Jorge writes a poem called Stars Come Out of Alfonso. Alfonso walks the streets of the mission, the afternoon on his hat and the night on his cane. There's salsa and rumba in his sailor's walk. Watch out, here comes a bandit, a gangster, say those who don't know, his gentle heart that harms no one. My shoots fit me tight, says Alfonso, and each time I take a step, stars come out. Alfonsito's shoes fit him tight, and every step he takes, he sees stars. Alfonsito knows how to dream. Jorge wrote this also in Spanish. Alf Alfonso le salen estrellas. Alfonso camina por las calles de la misión y viene con la tarde en el sombrero, con la noche en el bastón, lleva rumba y salsa su andar de marinero. Ahí viene un bandido, un gánster, dicen los que no conocen. Su corazón no hace daño a nadie. Me quedan apretados los zapatos, dice Alfonso. Y a cada paso que doy siento que me salen estrellas. Le aprietan los zapatos y a cada paso mira estrellas. Alfonsito sabe soñar. Let us remember Alfonsito Texidor. His dreams for the people are in our hands now. We were just talking about Hannah Arendt, who is uh, the great chronicler of uh, 20th century evil. The great chronicler of 19th century goodness is Charles Dickens. That's finally always his, his subject, in a way. Dickens focuses on human good, but also what, what Dickens bends to in all of his books are the ideas of justice and compassion. And that really speaks to what we were just talking about regarding Hannah Arendt. Mm -hmm. I would think that part of the pe reason people were angry at her um, for, this, for this approach is that she seemed uninterested in justice. She seemed much more interested in psychology and in human being and the There's human capacity some for truth evil. In that. Yeah, because she saw the court as a as a drama, as a play with with characters. And yeah. I think which that is was not a, about justice. It's yeah, about it it's about the way we we act with each other. But the, but the framework was completely juridical, and that's yes. what allowed her to tell her story. Right. So whether or not she wants to acknowledge it, she was clearly very interested in it. And of course, Dickens has a lot of. Um, the juridical, as you say, right? It's got well, right, Bleak House is Bleak, all centered on that. Bleak House is Little Dorrit is right. A lot of it takes place in a prison. He's very interested in the way the law 
uh, does not represent justice. Mm -hmm. But much more than much more than that, he's interested in the human heart, right? He's got this whole theory that basically the way you change society is you change the way people see the world. And the way to change the way they see the world is by changing the way they feel about the way things are going. I was thinking about Dickens and what he does. He can sketch a character more quickly and vividly than any writer on earth. Uh, just the habits, the what he's wearing, how he talks, what he looks like, uh, something bizarre, some some idiosyncratic detail about him, and then he runs with that. And and the aged P, the aged the P. aged P, beautiful, yes, yes. beautiful one. Yes, Tom, why is, has his popularity endured to the degree that it has? There are forty five answers to that. I think you know one is because he is. Uh, you know, fun for the whole family, right? Mm -hmm. It's something there's, it's a gateway drug for literature in general. Uh, so you get kids reading it, you get young adults reading it. One reason is because he is hilarious. Even in his most pathetic passages, there's some fun to be had. One of them is that these characters do pop off the page. And I think that the other is that I think most people, because your empathetic centers are all activated by fiction, and because Dickens' theory about fiction was that it was there to activate your empathetic centers. He's right in the gut of the, of why we read. I think to me, he's he's the Beatles of literature, and, <laughs> and what I mean by that is not not that their popularity is equal to that of Dickens, although I, it does work on that level. Absolutely, they're both incredibly popular aesthetic entities. The reason that Dickens works like the Beatles is because he has figured out a freeway to the brain's pleasure center very similar to what the Beatles did. There is something that happens in, in the biology of your brain when you listen to a lot of the Beatles music that's very similar to what happens when you read Dickens. It activates these pleasure neurons, and, and it's just so purely enjoyable and has been since the mid-19th century and will continue to be because of that, that magic effect that and his prose has. Absolutely. And I think part of the recipe for that is, you know, A, that the quick sketch character studies that we talked about that then go on to be in-depth. But the other thing is the motor of the story, suspense. He is the most suspenseful I don't know how he does it. You always want to know what's going to happen next, no matter how trivial the thing is that he's describing. And those two things together are just, you know, usually often writers will have one or the other. They'll be really good at characters or they'll be really good at suspense like all of your detective novels. And what's so astonishing to me is not only does he remain incredibly popular, but he remains incredibly influential because I just think 25 years ago you have The Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe, which is essentially a Dickens novel. And more recently you have The Wire on HBO, which is a television series that is essentially a Dickens novel rendered as a television series. I'm going to disagree with that. I think that uh, The Wire has a lack of sentimentality. I'm not sure if that's the word I mean, but mm -hmm. there, it, there's a lack of a cushion of comfort that Dickens always provides you with. You're right. Dickens, it's not its not a direct parallel, but so much of the construction of the wire, the high-low aspects, the attention paid to the lower levels of society, the way in which he mixed them together did not exist before Dickens really, and, in, the, yeah, in the novel. And, and, the, and the 140 characters... Right, mm -hmm. sketched really quickly, yeah. and yeah. which you, and which you ca catch up on on a regular basis throughout the course of a novel, and yeah. Mm -hmm. David Shields has this new book, A Conversation with Caleb Powell, and and one of the things they start talking about is the idea of show don't tell, right? Which every creative writing class uh, in the country has as its mantra. And Shields says that's crazy. It's not called story showing. 
It's storytelling. And one of the things about, about um, Dickens is that he's a great storyteller, meaning that you hear his voice. You hear that storyteller. You hear the bard at work. Which goes back to Hannah Arendt, in a way, who we were talking about earlier, where so much of her piece, Eichmann in Jerusalem, has to do with the tone. And Dickens was so much about, to your point, Tom, the tone. When we were in graduate school, the whole idea was Dickens is a bourgeois sentimentalist, and you can't take that seriously because we have a revolution to perform, you know. But now, there's a new generation of young scholars who are very interested, like our own Sarah Mesley, who runs avidly as a LARP channel. And she and a lot of her colleagues are really interested in emotion and in how, how the, the novel incites emotion. Yeah, ultimately, emotion can't be escaped, and it might come in and out of academic approbation. The new critics outlawed emotion, right? The, the affective fallacy. They said, you know, that whatever you feel when you're reading, that's not what the book, the, the, the story, not what the poem is about. But the average reader would completely disagree with that because they're reading to be engaged. Of course they are. There's a reason why every time The Sound of Music is done again, it gets a gazillion watchers. I mean, there's some things are just irresistible. And, why? and they're emotional. And 37 parodies. And, and why is Serial the most downloaded podcast ever? It's because people want to find out what happened. They want I know, to be and then yeah. she, she subverts Dickens, yeah. that. That's so Dickens. she may have to pay for subverting Well, she's that. a little postmodern. We'll see. Dickens was the great serialist, right? That was exactly right. Our friend, journalist Maria Bustios, is here to talk about a new novel called King Dork. Actually, it's not called King Dork. It's called King Dork Approximately. The sequel to King Dork is uh, King Dork Approximately, and I enjoyed it very much. It was written by Frank Portman, who is uh, the leader of a popular San Francisco post-pop-punk band, I guess you'd call it, the Mr. T Experience, and later turned to author. And I guess King Dork is being produced as a film by Will Ferrell's production company eventually. I don't know when it's coming out, but anyway, this book. I really enjoyed the first one and the second one as much or more so. And the, the really unusual thing about this book is that it presents teen sexuality in a very unabashed way from the male perspective. You know, that's not something that we really see. And the uh, protagonist of King Dork, Tom Henderson, is very frankly likes girls kind of like almost like Dobie Gillis I don't know if you remember <laughs> but like you know he would just say I like girls like just girls not just a not a girl <laughs> girls it kind of reminds me of how they actually are you know as opposed to Hunger Games exactly it made this huge contrast for me between Pita who is like the male protagonist in Hunger Games who's this like very weepy emo you know he's like sacrifice everything for the girl I love and I mean you know do we really know teen boys like this I mean maybe there are a few but I think they're pretty thin on the ground. There's just a vast difference between the way that girls are being kind of, it's, it's really quite throwback. It's just like it was when I was a kid. Or the way it was when uh, Margaret Mead wrote Coming of Age in Samoa, right, which is 1925, and yes. she's saying romantic love, the ideology of romantic love is what is the problem. And she wanted to see something in Samoa you know, she was kind of discredited, actually, too. Like, you know, it's like things in Samoa were more like our things than she really wanted to, like, admit. I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, and so she's she's kind of making her critique with a, with a bit of a fantasy culture. But the critique was, yes. was against... Uh, was against the romantic love, just as you're saying this King Dork is. Yeah. So is there any romantic love in the book? Yes, but it's it's the kind of mediated, realistic compromise when... 
a boy falls in love, a sensible girl will know that she is not Katniss Everdeen, you know, or not to make this big thing out of it where like he actually has to drown like at the end of Titanic in order to prove that he really loves her, you know, like this, this whole swooning thing of like he'll do anything for me. I mean, I, I don't know what it is we like about that, but I don't think sensible women really like that. You know, I, I, I think like egalitarian um, couples who really like each other and admire and respect each other as equals rather than according to the fairy tale system will have a more successful and more fun relationships and I kind of think that that's where Portman is getting. So do, and do you think then that that Hunger Games is for girls and, and Portman is for boys or is, yes. is it? Well no I mean I kind of think Portman could be for girls but it's not built for girls the way that Hunger Games is built for girls. Mm -hmm. But girls should read it. Girls should read it. Boys should read it. Boys should read it. Men and women should read it. I loved it. The bard of contemporary crime fiction in Los Angeles is James Elroy. And Tom, you interviewed him uh, recently at Emerson College. We just did our book club. So we streamed this interview online and had a, had a live audience too. It's the second time I've interviewed Elroy, maybe the third. I, it's always fun. And what's the book he's flogging now? It's called Perfidia, which is based on the... Um, dance tune. Glenn Miller did a version of it. Jimmy Dorsey did a version of it. Then later the, the Ventures do it. It's a, And the song is about, of course, Perfidia is perfidy. It is uh, about betrayal and it's about knowing betrayal. It's about people who set up their relationships for the eventual betrayal that's in the offing. And one of the things you asked him about was his prose style. I write rigorously plotted novels with a great deal of exposition. People think their own backstories, or if I'm writing in the first person, describe their own backstories. I have to put out that information to my readers artfully, intelligently, cogently, as a person thinks it. Yes. And thinks it, in the case of this book, Perfidia, in real time. And of course, I haven't read many books. I haven't read the 20th century American or English language canon. I've never read Faulkner. I've read two books by Hemingway. I read two books by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I've read a half dozen books by the illustrious Jewish guys who came in after World War II. Mm -hmm. I came at this ship as honestly as you came at being an English professor. I've read in my lifetime crime novels almost exclusively. Now the thing is about, about that answer is that he is, uh, he is such a performative person, right? I mean, he is a great performer. Lots of writers, you have right, you know, writers that will come up and just drone on at sure. the microphone, right? All of them. <laughs> and uh, not you, Seth. No, not me. Yeah. And, but Elroy is in a class of his own right, at this, right? He's just a great performer. And you always end up wondering how much of the shtick is shtick and how much of it is who he really is. 
he uh, he presents himself as the demon dog, now the death dog of American literature. Well, he's a vaudevillian quality to his presentation, doesn't he? It's large. It's really large. And uh, you know, I felt I felt silly asking him these some quasi academic questions. You know, <laughs> when he would come back, and his answer to a lot of the questions is, uh, "I never read that." <laughs> you know, I, I asked him something about stream of consciousness. He said, "I, I never took that course." <laughs> um, right and. <laughs> Well, he's a provocateur. He obviously yeah. wanted to zets you. But there's something about what he does, I think, that transcends its own process. There's something it adds up to something. You know, in the way in the way that Dickens, line by line, you you keep you get pleasure after pleasure after pleasure. In 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 Elroy, I feel like there's something additive about it. As as you read, you're on page five hundred. You're on page six hundred. The the world that he's building just gets larger and larger and more significant through accretion rather than through um, kind of momentary insight. Um, something I always find interesting about Elroy, and this might just be my own peculiarness, but the fact that when he was a teenager in his young 20s, early 20s, he was basically homeless. He was a drug addict. He suffered from clinical depression. And to look at the the Elroy that we see today and try to find that period in him or in his writing, I always find very interesting because you say he's, he's performative. He presents as extremely, extremely masculine. I mean, to a degree that, you know, I find all, I, I, w- I can't say that it's misogynistic, but there's something about it that makes me almost a little uncomfortable. What did you think of Perfidia? I loved it. It's uh, nonstop. He, you know, he has this idea. Um, well, I'll let him tell it. That book, with its 14 plot lines, its real-time construction, its 140 characters, derives from a 700-page outline. I ain't got time to fuck around with extended stream of consciousness (laughs) or with hopped-up language that goes on and on and on. I've got a story to tell, and I want to make the language as jazzy as I can make it. I'm always on that clock of move the story. To a certain extent, that's true. There's an unrelenting incident. There's unrelenting drama. It, it just keeps is it drama or new mel- crimes. Is, is it drama that he does, or is it melodrama? What's the difference? Melodrama has a p as a jeez. What's the difference? My glib answer just deserted me. And there's no question. I mean, this the whole kind of high low question because melodrama and drama is really a high low question, right? Mm, drama is the stuff that we think is good, and melodrama is the stuff that we think is less. Is it good. pulp or is it art? It's both. I was thinking. You know, we were we were watching this clip of James Taylor and Johnny Cash singing together on Johnny Cash's TV show in 1971. And it was so interesting because James Taylor had the long hair and the sensitivity and the girly emotional thing that that men were bringing into the culture at that time. I mean, it happened before, but at this particular moment in time, uh, compared to Johnny Cash, it was really interesting to watch. That's what I think of when I talk to Elroy. It's like there's no feminization in him at all. It feels, when you're a woman, it feels like you're being... closed out or at a certain way that neither one of you guys, for instance, you're both feminized. Yeah, and Elroy well, would never, ever do. He's so closed off to it. I happen to know that James Elroy loves James Taylor. He told me that while he was cupping my testicles. 
Are you making that? In up? all seriousness, <laughs> in all seriousness, he. I think that that for me, that's one of the things that uh, has endeared me to him and has enriched his, my reading experience. Is that I think that he's actually a teddy bear. You know, I think he's really a sweet guy. I think he's, and I, he probably will hate me for saying this, but I think he's got an enormous heart, and I think that he's really interested in the full range of human emotion. And I think that the sh- the stickiness of the shtick has to do with exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. People said to me, oh man, that must have been scary to interview James. All right, no, he's, he's fun. That's our show. Thanks to our producer, Jerry Gorin. For Tom Lutz, Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland for the LARB Radio Hour. You can find us on the web at, Tom, where can you find us? LAReviewofbooks.org. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.